You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, again, family, Merry Christmas to you. And uh, I'm not sure what your Christmas Eve night looked like last night, but many of you have different traditions. Um, I've heard of traditions of people going out for Italian food, or some people have cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning, or some people like to sit by the fireplace or an electric heater and read the Christmas story. And one of those traditions that I know that many people do on the night before Christmas is they read that little story the night before Christmas. When all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. It's a cute and quaint little story about trying to catch a glimpse of Santa, right? Is he myth or is he real? The wonder of children all over the world. But this morning, I want to tell you a different story. A more important story. A story of the Old Testament when God delivered his people and provided a foreshadow of the coming Messiah, of the omnipotent king, Jesus, and his kingdom eternal. And the story goes like this. Twas the day of our freedom. Four centuries we'd waited. Did God even care? We often debated. In bondage to masters who looked out for their own, placed on us heavy burdens, breaking spirit and bone. Our backs bent under brick and the whips of oppression. Our hearts losing hope, descending into depression. When a man stepped between the dark throne and our plight, could this really be the first glimpses of light? He was hardly attractive, not the redeemer we'd choose. Humble and aged, not a warrior or muse. At first I was suspect as my hardship increased. Shouldn't a savior of man cause my trials to cease? Then the wonders of God began to unfold. Before my eyes, I saw strength, Father Abraham foretold. Nature obeyed at God's servant's command, unleashing terrifying plagues. I witness firsthand. Each time more significant, ten signs of God's power, culminating in a fateful and deadly last hour. With the same sorrow and grief our people knew well, our captors relinquished and unlocked the gates of our hell. With haste and with joy, we left Egypt in song. Young and old praising God, we had waited so long. A celebration was replaced with cries of doubting and fear as the armies of Pharaoh changed their mind and drew near. Chariot wheels caused the desert shores to quake. Our souls tremored as faith waned and did shake. Our backs to the sea and faces blinded by the glint of enemy sword. Were we saved but for a moment? 
only to be bound again by slavery's cord. When all of the sudden, with no chance of survival, God intervened, a miraculous arrival, a pillar of brilliant light to those on his side, the terror of darkness on the other divide. God came between certain death to bring us redemption, a foreshadow of his son, judgment's exemption. Salvation's road leads to the cross of Red Sea, where Pharaoh's army is drowned and God's people are free. What an incredible story found in the chapters of Exodus verses 1 through 14. Israel redeemed from their bondage and slavery to Egypt, where God stepped into that chasm, to that place between Egypt and Israel. When Israel had no weapons, had no hope, had no way to defend themselves, God brings his pillar of cloud and his fire to stand between the enemy and his very own people. You see, this isn't the only time that God does this. And as many of you know the stories of the Old Testament, God is constantly stepping in between his people and certain death. When we consider Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God makes the pronouncement in Genesis 3 that although Satan would strike the heel of his son, the Messiah, the Savior, the omnipotent king that would come would crush the serpent's head. We see Noah and his family facing a worldwide flood. And yet God gives them the instructions to build an ark, to be saved, to be rescued, a way to be redeemed from the floodwaters. We see Abraham, a pagan man, chosen to be the beginning of the nation of Israel. And God makes a covenant with Abraham in which on one half and another side, animals are split down the middle. And to make a covenant with Abraham, God walks down the middle of these carcasses, representing him in between instead of Abraham having to do something to earn that salvation. We see Moses in the Exodus story that we just looked at. If you go to second Kings chapter 19, King Hezekiah is surrounded by the Assyrian army and a mighty general of the Assyrians has told him, we're going to crush and to kill you. And in humility, Hezekiah prays to the Lord and God sends his angel of death to wipe out 185,000 of the Assyrian troops overnight, all on his own and causes them to leave by morning. We think of Esther and how God raised up this average Jewish woman to become the queen of an empire to rescue and to redeem God's people from Haman and the annihilation of the Jews. Why does this matter? What in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Well, all of these stories, when we think back to that Exodus story of God delivering his people through the Red Sea, drowning the Egyptian in the waters, all of these stories in the Old Testament are physical pictures of our spiritual condition. We are doomed, overcome with sin, headed toward the fires of separation of eternity in which man could no longer be with God because of our sinfulness, 
And yet God steps in between. He makes a way for each one of us. As a matter of fact, Jesus even talks about this, this separation in Luke chapter 16, verse 26, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is describing this picture of this rich man being in hell and Lazarus being in heaven. And that there is this great chasm between, listen to this in Luke 16, 26. Jesus describes this condition by saying, and besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from you to here and no one can cross over to us from there. What distress, what an impossible chasm to bridge. But God, who is rich in mercy. And with the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. I want to encourage you, church family, this Christmas, as you're celebrating with family or friends today, or maybe you're sitting alone in the quietness of your home. Maybe you have the opportunity to open up gifts or to watch others, or you're simply there in the quietness before the Lord. I would ask you to consider this. The power that we saw at the Red Sea when God delivers Moses and the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. That same power that sent the angel of death to wipe out 185,000 of Assyria's army overnight, or the same power that caused Jonah to be swallowed by a whale and then on command spit out in the very place that God desired to send Jonah. That same power is all found in the omnipotent king who is Jesus. This Christmas, focus on more than just a baby in a manger, but have understanding of who Jesus truly is, this omnipotent king. When we consider what Jesus means, the name literally means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel comes to Joseph who has his doubts about Mary's story. Has she really been faithful? Could this child that she is, has conceived, could this child really be from the Lord? And the angel assures Joseph by saying this in Matthew 1, 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To the world, the meaning of Christmas may be a Christmas tree or Santa or presents, or maybe at best, even being with family and friends. But as a whole, Christmas has been diluted to an event with food and festivities and oftentimes with at least some kind of holiday cheer. But that holiday cheer isn't always for everyone. It's often circumstantial. And there are many people who are hurting, who are in need of something greater than Santa or trees or presents or ornaments or lights or whatever it might be. Therefore, what do we learn from Old Testament stories like we have talked about? How does that correlate in conjunction with the Christmas story? If you have your Bibles with you, whether you're at home 
I'd love for you to open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to take a good hard look at Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. And just to set the tone for you, to give you an idea of where we are in the Christmas story, Jesus has been born. And if you've been with us through this series, the omnipotent king and his kingdom eternal, we've talked about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the birth of Jesus in a lowly manger in the smallest of small and humble towns called Bethlehem. We've seen the shepherd's response to the angels proclaiming that the Messiah has come. We've seen the opposition in King Herod trying to protect his own kingdom. And now we come to this place in the Christmas story where Jesus has been circumcised eight days after being born. And as was custom with the Jews, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated in Jerusalem. And while they are in the temple making their sacrifice, an amazing thing happens. Not something that we would expect, not a person or a character that we thought we would be introduced to. But in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, we see God's continued favor being poured out on those who are humble and walking with him. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 begins like this. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We're introduced to this man, Simeon. And we don't know a lot about Simeon. And here's why we don't know a lot about Simeon. Because really, in the world's eyes, he's nobody. He's not the high priest. He's not a dignitary. He's not a wise man from far away. He's not a prominent official in Jerusalem or in Judea. He's not part of the Roman Empire's tyranny or leadership. Simeon is simply a humble man. And just for a moment, I want to look back at those Old Testament stories that we covered. Isn't it just like God? To continue to raise up humble men and women to be the leaders of his people, to be a reflection of his character, to come under his lordship and to display the character of Jesus Christ. We know that Moses was a prince of Egypt, but God brought him to a place of humbling in the desert for 40 years until the Bible describes Moses as the most humble man whoever walked the earth. When we consider Abraham, there was nothing special about him. He was a pagan Middle Eastern man whom God called out of his sinful ways to walk in the wisdom of God's ways. When we consider Esther, she was no one special. Yes, she had great beauty, but she was just an average Jewish girl who was raised up to help be a rescuer of God's people. Over and over and over again, we see 
that many of God's leaders, one of their greatest characteristics is that they are humble. Here is what we know about Simeon, according to Luke chapter 2. It says that he was a just and devout man. A just meaning just in his relationships with others. Just in the way that he treated others. Spoke to others. Gave justice for what was right. And opposed what was wrong. A devout man meant that he had a deep and meaningful relationship with God. He was more than just a religious or pious man. He was a man who lived out the wisdom of God's ways. Who knew God's word and therefore knew God's will. And isn't it amazing when we look at the text that it tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That term, the consolation of Israel, is just referring to the Messiah. And if you know your Bible, there have been 400 years of silence between the last prophet and then the birth and announcement of Jesus Christ. 400 years of silence. And yet Simeon is waiting with anticipation, with expectation for the Messiah to come. And in Luke chapter 2, Verse 26, it even tells us that this man who is full of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. You bet that Simeon was waiting with expectation. And I want to encourage each one of you who are listening today. Here's who Simeon was. He was just a guy that went to church on Sundays. He was just a guy who spent time reading his Bible throughout the week. He was just a guy who ministered to others, not for selfish gain, but to build others up, to be that builder of other men and other women. And here is what we know. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. And here we see this humble man, Simeon. We don't know his educational background. He wasn't some prominent person in the temple. But because he was walking in step with the Lord, God led him right to where he needed to be that day. To fulfill the promise that the Spirit had made to him that, Simeon, you will see the Messiah before you die. Now, there's really no indication of Simeon's age. Um, Oftentimes, it's assumed that he was an older man, and maybe he was, but that's not one of the details we get. We simply know that this is a seasoned veteran, someone who's been walking with God for a long time, who bears the fruit of his spirit. And when we say that God gives grace to the humble, we're reminded in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, which quotes Proverbs 3, Verse 34, and says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? Well, the resisting of the proud is for those who come and say, my self-righteousness is enough. Or for those who come and say, my good works, the things that I've done, My accomplishments, my success, my piety, my looks, my bank account, whatever it might be, this is enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Simply says that God will 
resist or oppose the proud. Their plans will come to nothing. Their ways will only lead to destruction, but to the humble. To the humble, God gives grace. Go back to what Paul said. I quoted it earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, we have been saved. And what is that grace that God has given to us? Oh, that's the omnipotent king. That's Jesus Christ. That's the baby in the manger who is so much more than just a baby, but the power of God in the flesh. This is who we worship on Christmas Day. This is why we have a Christmas Day as a reminder, not only to the church, but to the world, that there is an omnipotent king. When we talk about that God gives grace to the humble, here's what humility looks like. Simeon, a man who walked with God. Someone here who takes out the trash without asking. Not to be noticed by others, but by contributing and doing it unto the Lord. It looks like working an eight to five job or taking care of grandkids. You can be single or married Walking in obedience to God's word while you change diapers or while you surf. Humility is not in what you do, but rather it is the heart with which you do it. Simeon was just a regular guy. Just like most of us are regular men and women. Nothing overly special about any of us. And yet God takes that humble spirit and humble means this. A humble spirit is one that is repentant. One that recognizes I'm a sinner who needs saving and God, by your grace, through your son, Jesus Christ, the omnipotent King, I desire to come under your Lordship, not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Christmas day, not just on Easter, but to bring every area of my life under the Lordship of Jesus and then trusting that through his saving grace, God calls us sons and daughters, saints in his kingdom. What an incredible gift that we have been given on Christmas day. So much more than just the idea of a baby in a manger. And yet here's the reality of this story. In the Christmas story, Jesus is a baby and he's fully man and fully God. And look at what it says in Luke 2, 27. So he, meaning Simeon, came by the spirit, meaning he was led by the Lord into the temple at that day, at that time. Now, I have no doubt that Simeon was no stranger to the temple, but specifically scripture takes the time to point out that Simeon came by the spirit, listening to the Lord's prompting, walking in his ways. He came by the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, meaning Joseph and Mary, and that child being Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, we'll look at what Simeon said in just a moment, but I want to focus on these important notes that we get specifically in verse 28. 
How did Simeon respond and rejoice when he saw the Messiah? How did Simeon posture himself with a baby? It's easier for us to think of Jesus as the omnipotent king than sometimes a baby. And yet I want you to pay careful attention to how Simeon responds. He keeps Jesus close to his heart. Church family, I want to encourage you. Keep Jesus close to your heart. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, look at what Simeon literally does. It says he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed him. Now, depending on what you're thinking of, uh, yes, in the Lion King, you get Simba and they're holding him out here like this over the cliff. I highly doubt that that's what Simeon did. When you have a baby, how do you hold that baby? You put your arm underneath to secure that child and you draw them close into your chest. And if you've been a parent for a while, you learn that if you get that baby's ear, Against your heartbeat, that baby begins to slowly calm and even often to go to sleep. And I can just imagine Simeon taking Jesus into his arms and holding the Savior, the Messiah, close to his heart. What does that physically, tangibly, spiritually look like for us? means that we're called to embrace and to cherish Jesus above all things. You can do that by reflecting and reading his word. It doesn't have to be something that you do all day long in order to be considered holy. Remember, it's the righteousness of Christ that makes us holy. But to keep Jesus close to our heart is to treasure the things of Jesus. And since Jesus is the word of God, to treasure his word by reading and reflecting in it. By spending time in prayer and remembering that prayer is less about telling God what we want and need, although that's part of it, but more about aligning our will with the heart of God. And the way to do that is by keeping Jesus close to our hearts. It could be singing spiritual songs and hymns. It's why we worship together on Sundays. It's why it's something that often happens in our mission groups or in young adults or in Awana. It means serving others with joy. Not out of compulsion. Not because you have to. Not because it makes you look good. Not to get a paycheck. But serving others in the name of Jesus. Helps keep Jesus close to your heart. We know that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others. Finally, to keep Jesus close to our heart, we know that where our treasure is, there also our hearts will be. When we consider the treasures that we pursue in this life, are we putting Jesus above those things? Is your time, your emotions, your resources, where is your vision being spent? Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Keep Jesus close to our hearts. Simeon literally does this with Jesus, and yet he's been doing this for years, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah. 
So Simeon takes Jesus up in his arms and blesses God and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, again, Simeon is just a regular guy, a follower of God. He's nobody special in the world's eyes. And yet, do you hear the words coming out of his mouth? Profound. Prophetic. Important indeed, not because of anything that has to do with Simeon, but everything to do with a man who is led by God's spirit, who is conformed to God's will because he knows God's word. And Simeon's words really give us hope and encouragement. Uh, We are on this side of history. We know the story of Jesus. We understand the the death on the cross, the resurrection from the grave, his ascension. But here we are in that in-between period, very similar to the waiting that Simeon was doing before he got to meet Jesus and hold him in his arms. Here we are on this side of history, waiting for the return of the omnipotent king on the white horse to begin his millennial kingdom reign. How are we called to wait? What does it look like to wait like Simeon did? And here's what Simeon expresses. That peace with God leads to a content life. Peace with God leads to a content life. Now, we don't know a lot about Simeon's life outside of this story. We don't know what tragedies he had faced in his life, what successes that he had, what joy he had experienced, what his family dynamics was like. We don't know about his financial condition or where he was in his own personal health. But what we know is that Simeon expresses in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Peace with God leads to a content life. What does that even mean? It means that here, Simeon's not being morbid. He's not saying, oh, thank goodness. Now just, I don't want to live anymore. I just want to die. Instead, really, here's what he's saying. Goodbye, things of the world. So long material possessions or fleshly pleasures. The culmination of my joy has been complete. I have seen with my own eyes the Savior, the King, the Messiah that not only I, but the the people of Israel have been waiting for for millennia. I have seen the omnipotent King and everything else now pales in comparison. Certainly on Christmas Day or all of the festivities leading up to Christmas. It's a materialistic culture. Um, There's so much energy and stress and time and resources locked up into getting gifts and receiving gifts and giving gifts and making sure that you've got your lights on your house and you could go on and on. And Simeon is simply saying, I am at peace with God because he has fulfilled his word to me. 
And that's who Jesus is. The fulfillment of God's promises, of his prophecies from the time of Genesis 3, all through the scriptures. Simeon has peace because everything else in this world pales in comparison to his experience. What I love about part of this peace is that oftentimes the striving, the self-righteousness, trying to be good enough to be worthy of reward, we're reminded that it's all accomplished in the righteousness of Christ. May this truth bring you rest. May it help you this Christmas day and this Christmas season or as you head into the new year, as you set goals and visions, not to be consumed with, I have to, and then all the things you need to do. And listen, there are tangible things. We are called to put our hand to the plow. We're called to work. We're called to steward things appropriately. But we are not called to earn our salvation, to earn God's favor. It is freely given. And we know it's freely given because he sent us his son. And the apostle Paul found great comfort in this. A man who strived his whole life, who got so caught up in being religious, in being right and being darn right, that he was then killing Christians in the name of God. And Paul, after seeing the risen Christ, experiencing his lordship, recognizing that he was the omnipotent king, says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. This is what it means to have peace. That even in the midst of all the circumstances, of all the hard work you've put in, of all the things that have worked out in your favor and all the things that have not. And the difficult news of your personal health or the health of a family member and the sorrow of losing loved ones and the joys of watching babies be born or healthy marriages continue in all of these things. There is peace with God that leads us to a content life, not because of our circumstances, but because God sent his son, Jesus, the omnipotent King to come and to die and to be raised from the dead for us. And when we consider even death, possibly the most terrifying thing in all the world, it still ranks as the highest thing that people are afraid of. Doesn't matter what culture you're in. Doesn't matter what religion you come from. Death is still the most feared in the world by humanity. Notice how Simeon now approaches death. He says, in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Even to Simeon, death is a friend. Now that he has seen the Messiah. Knowing that God has been faithful to his promises. Knowing that death is simply a new beginning to eternity 
with Christ in his kingdom eternal. We continue and look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Here is what Simeon knew, something that we can cling to, something that should not only give us individual hope, but hope for our coworkers and our neighbors and our family and friends, and especially those in our life that we sometimes get the inklings of those understandings of like, oh, they're never going to come to Jesus. Here's what Simeon knew, that Jesus came to offer salvation to everyone. Jesus came to offer salvation to everyone. And this wasn't because Simeon was so intelligent or that God just gave only Simeon some special revelation. No, this was because Simeon knew God's word. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah talks about how the coming king, the Messiah, would be a light unto the Gentiles. That it wouldn't, that salvation wouldn't just be for God's chosen people, Israel, but that salvation would be extended to all the nations of the earth. It's why God calls his disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the world, into all the nations and make disciples. Begin first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Simeon knew, just like we can be assured today, that Jesus came to offer salvation to everyone. And the only one who can do that is the all-powerful king. The only one who can bring salvation to a man or to a woman or to a child, regardless of what they've done or what's been done to them, is because he is the king of the universe. So much more than just a baby in the manger. We'll finish out this section in verses 33 through 35. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon not only speaks prophetically about who he is holding close to his heart, the Messiah, but he speaks to Joseph and to Mary. And he tells them some profound truth. He says this, that Jesus is destined to be the fall and the rise of many in Israel. The fall, the fall, but isn't he come to bring life? Yes, but remember, God resists the proud. Those who reject the lordship of Jesus. Those who simply say, Christmas Day is a good time to watch a message, and I'll watch another message on Easter and then on Christmas Day, but it's not going to affect my life. To those who are proud, they will fall upon the righteousness of Jesus in which their own unrighteousness will fall short of God's glorious kingdom. But to those who are humble, they will rise 
rise. Yes, rise from the dead. Just like that Ephesians 2 passage said, that even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. There are only two options when it comes to the omnipotent king. We will either rise with him or we will fall because of his glorious kingdom. There is an invitation to all mankind, to both Jews and to Gentiles, to those that are of non-Jewish descent. And we know that Jesus and his salvation is for everyone. Simeon continues, and he specifically says to Mary, that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Um, This is prophetic on Simeon's part. He's building Mary. Here she is. She knows that she has a special child. Does she know the totality of who Jesus is? Can't be possible. No different than I can know the totality of who Jesus is. Every day we're growing in understanding of who he is. And Simeon reminds her, being the mother of the Messiah isn't going to be all rainbows and butterflies. It's going to be a difficult road. And even a time will come where it will feel like a sword has pierced your soul. And there's no doubt Simeon is speaking prophetically about the death of Christ on the cross. And we remember that his mother Mary was there at the foot of the cross watching this terrible ordeal unfold. And how awful that must have been for her knowing that the rejection of Christ by many was also her own rejection. And yet having the hope that Christ's resurrection would be her own resurrection in eternity. And finally, Simeon finishes by saying in verse 34, and for a sign which will be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. We see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. He is a light in a dark world, speaking truth in a region of many false religions. The false religion of piety, of self-righteousness, of having enough money to make it on your own, of having enough education, or feeling sorry for yourself, the religions of materialism or the religions of aestheticism. And we see that Jesus is this light in a dark world, a target for evil to seek out. And yet Simeon finishes by saying that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the beauty of the omnipotent king. This is who he is from the Old Testament. All the power that has been displayed through every story in which we go, wow, I wish I could have been there to see that. That's who lies in the manger. That's who we celebrate on Christmas. And this same omnipotent king has come for the purpose to reveal our own hearts, to uncover, to peel back the layers Who do we really worship? Is it ourselves? Is it the things of this world? Or is it the omnipotent king and his kingdom eternal? 
I want to encourage you on this Christmas day, whether you're with family or friends, maybe you're even away for the holidays and you're watching this from another state. Take some time to ponder. When the omnipotent king looks at your heart, what does he see? Who do you worship? Are you treasuring Jesus as the omnipotent king? Because we know this for certain, that he treasures you to come and be part of his kingdom eternal. Church family, Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us today. And we can't wait to see you for our New Year's baptism next Sunday at 8 o'clock, 945 and 1130. God bless you. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.